Hello, I'm Cheryl Kennedy from the Library of Congress. The National Book Festival is in its seventh year, and it has attracted tens of thousands of book lovers of all ages to the nation's capital to celebrate reading and lifelong literacy. This free event is sponsored and organized by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. This year, the festival will take place on Saturday, September 29th, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Festival goers will meet and interact with 70 best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. There will be activities for the entire family. If you're unable to attend in person, we invite you to experience the festival online. Our podcast interview series with well-known authors, along with webcasts from the festival, will be available through the National Book Festival's website at loc.gov bookfest. Many people know today's guest from her roles in film and on television as the feisty Trusilla Winters on the daytime drama The Young and the Restless and smart Amanda Bentley on Diagnosis Murder. Her talents also extend to dancing professionally with several ballet companies. However, to truly know the person behind the public face, you will need to read her critically acclaimed memoir, The Women Who Raised Me, which is on the New York Times and Essence bestsellers list. Welcome, uh, Victoria Royale, award-winning actress. Thank you so much. And now author. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Now, your book is... A- well, I, I thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about the National Book Fair. Well, we are, too. Um, why do you think it was important for you to uh, participate? I know your fans are thrilled. Well, it's important for me to participate because the book, of course, for me was always about more than writing a book and selling books. I have not only a domestic message but an international one in that uh, mentoring, fostering, adopting children, which are at pandemic levels, I might add, um, is very necessary. And clearly, American people have stepped out, uh, not only my strong supporters in the acting arena, uh, but have stepped out to, to purchase the book and support the message. And so I'm cresting at 100 days on the road since April 11th, and I just want to thank everyone who has come out with flowers and especially the hugs um, in support of uh, my memoir, The Women Who Raised Me. Now, your book is a tribute to the women who played starring roles in your life. You described it as a self-journey and a conduit, actually, for your emancipation. What inspired you to take this journey? Well, I mean, what inspired me was that it was, it, it was, a, a, a goal of mine, I won't even call it a dream because I had intended to write the book, but uh, it's an homage to these extraordinary um, women who you would look up and say, well, these are ordinary women. They were farmers, they were teachers, they were social workers, they were respite caregivers, which is weekend caregivers in the foster care system. They were mothers, wives, some having 10 children of their own, um, I wanted to write the book, and I wanted it to be published while many of them were still alive so that we could celebrate together and also show that mentoring happens where you sit or stand. You don't need a tremendous amount of money. You don't need a lot of money at all. You just have to have willingness and really the, the real estate in your heart 
or another person. And so I wanted people to know that these people do exist. It's not always the dismal, it's not always about the dismal headlines we read about, uh, about foster care. Uh, um, I wanted to show the positive side of what happens. And my story is not unique. There are many, there are thousands upon thousands of people that have also benefited from this kind of mentoring. How did you become a ward of the state of Maine? I became a ward of the state of Maine uh, by virtue of my mother's illness. She suffered from schizophrenia, and she never thought that she would be separated from her children because of her illness. She had not been diagnosed at that time, but she was um, about to give birth to me. I would have been her—I was her fourth child at that time. And um, she, I'm sorry, I was her fifth child, I apologize. I was her fifth child um, at that time, um, which goes to show how long she was suffering as a mother. Um, But it was um, made apparent that I would be immediately placed into care, which I was at the hospital. Now, I gather that your foster mother wanted to adopt you but she couldn't because you were of another race. Um, Yes, state law in the state of Maine dictated that children who were of a brown race could not be raised, adopted, foster, or otherwise by a white family. And um, I, from the beginning, was met with very intrepid, um, you know, indomitable women who uh, broke the law, essentially. There were three women who banded together, in Gray, Maine, uh, European women, and they took care of me for two and a half years. Um, Government later swooped in, the Department of um, Human Services swooped in and removed me from that household when they found a black family. All of the course was unfair and very painful. I remained in touch with those families directly and indirectly. Some of the women had passed on. One of the women in particular had passed on, my first mother, Bertha Taylor, but the other two women remarkably were still alive and we were reunited over 30 years later. Yeah, it brought closure for all of us because they all tried. One failed in adoption, the other picked up. They thought they they could perhaps convince the system. They appealed to the governor at that time. The year that I was born, there were four governors. I think unprecedented that there were four different governors in one year. And um, they appealed to the governor and they, they... really kicked up some dust in um, in uh, Augusta, but to no avail. Uh, but it, it was, I think, the beginnings of, you know, the fight that still remains in me for equality. How did you deal with racism and prejudice growing up, especially when it came from your own family? Um, I dealt with racism and injustice, uh, especially having to deal with it in my own family um, for that very reason because I think when a child is I mean everyone is born with openness and hope and when you are shown in very short order that you are not included there's a, a, a very obvious exclusionary behavior um, I think one of two things can happen. A child can feel defeated or a child can rise up against it, given the mentoring 
reframing, and I was given tremendous mentoring, and I was given a sense of self by my primary foster mother, Agatha Armstead, and so she 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 told me and taught me my my importance and significance, and you know that was I think my 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 fortress um, because she said regardless if you're not included. Um, in a circumstance, you just certainly go around it, create your own. And so I, I learned that from her to, to create my own world, which I did. How did the women who raised you prepare you for your own children, for motherhood? Um, the women who raised me um, prepared me uh, to raise my own children by virtue of their example. And uh, they were all mothers themselves, as I mentioned. And they all had a sense of humor. They were all wise. They were all businesswomen in their own right, whether they were canning vegetables or whether they were teaching ballet classes or, or, or staying at home, um, head of household. Um, they all had their own ingredients, if you will, uh, that they imparted to me. And foster children typically are not left in the will. Um, but my inheritance, most assuredly, is all of the gifts that these women imparted to me by way of the lessons. Um, I, I took all of that, and, of course, I imparted that to my children the best way that I have known how to. And um, I have a very strong relationship with my two children. My daughter is 18 and my son is 11. Um, they understand um, that I grew up in foster care, but uh, they, they, I told them they don't ever have to understand my life because my life is not their life. We're all individuals. Um, they understand the importance of the work that I do in foster care, um, and that's all that I can ask of them, and to to be considerate of those who have less. And I think by virtue of what I've demonstrated in my involvement in foster care and adoption, they are young humanitarians, no question about it today. Did they talk to you about your book? Did they tell you? Yeah, well, my son's 11, so we're... You know, he saw me working away on the book. I dedicated two rooms in our house to the book. Our, our breakfast room, which, which was completely filled with all of my research material. Of course, my computer was set up there, and it was where I took meetings, um, and my office. Um, my daughter, uh, where she knows a lot of the history, um, it it made her you know, it, it, it made her cry um, because it's one thing to tell my children the stories. It's another thing to read the fine detail in your own time. Um, and she's very, they're both are very proud of me and they've told me that they're proud of me. And it's given them, uh, especially my daughter, a, another level of awareness in reading this book as an 18-year-old young lady um, because at, eight, at 17 I was living in New York on my own and no matter how many times she's heard that it has a whole other 
relevance to her reading this story because it's framed with so much else. Well, it's certainly a wonderful legacy to give your children. What en- Thank you. What enabled you to finally embrace your mother, Dorothy? I'm sorry, what enabled me? To finally embrace, what enabled you to finally embrace your mother, Dorothy? Oh, oh, I always embraced Dorothy, my natural mother. I, I held no resentment um, uh, against her whatsoever, and that is due to the miracle of the mentoring I got from my foster mother, Agatha Armstead. Agatha Armstead, long before. Uh, the administration of, of children and family services or the Department of Human Services um, uh, came to the phrase wraparound services was doing so. And so without any permission whatsoever, she invited after many uh, conversations and a lot of planning, she allowed for Dorothy Mabel Collins Rowell to visit us and stay with us in our house in Maine um, for short periods of time and also organized other visitations uh, and also definitely encouraged correspondence and that's how I began to write. She encouraged us to write our mother because she believed no matter what. I don't care if a mother is in prison or a mother is ill or a mother is trying to recover from any kind of an addiction. A mother wants to know where her children are. And she explained that to me uh, at six. Mm. And uh, I learned very early uh, because she had the courage to know that her own mothering was secure enough that she would have um, no, um, I'm trying to think of the word, she would have no concerns about me becoming mm, perhaps adverse to her mothering me. Even at the age of six, many people have uh, feel a bit intimidated in opening up that door to finding the natural parent or introducing the child to the natural parent, but not Agatha. She felt it was essential to my growth to know my natural mother and to understand, to witness, to see her, to understand this is why you are in my care. And when I laid eyes on Dorothy, I understood instantly that I was in the right place and that Dorothy had done the right thing. Um because Dorothy, and I won't give away the book, but, but, but Dorothy always wanted me to be with Agatha. Of all the women you talk about in your book, who had the most dramatic influence on your development? Was it Agatha Armstead? Agatha Armstead was the most dramatic in my development. It was certainly because of the long-term mentoring that she gave me and, and the love and just the, the contiguous years of care uh, that she provided, the length that she went to. Because she was born in 1903, she was a senior citizen when she was taking care of me. She did go back to work for, social, for the Social Security office in Massachusetts, in Roxbury, Massachusetts, at Dudley Station, 
so that she could bring an extra income to keep me and to provide the things for my sisters and I that we needed as growing teens. Um, she was in a, she was just uh, uh, the most selfless, committed person um, that I have ever met. Um, I have met other people who have been also very, very um, influential in my life, have been very caring in my life, um, and people that I turn to to this day. But Agatha Wooten Armstrong was by far the most influential. You describe Latanya Richardson Jackson, a fellow actor and wife of actor Samuel Jackson, is not only a close friend, but an enlightened mentor, earth mother, and soul sister. Um, I understand from reading your book that she was there at a critical time in your life. Can you tell yes. us about that? Yes. Um, Latanya Richardson Jackson is an extraordinary actress uh, from public theater in New York City with Joe Papp to Broadway. And... Uh, we share that most definitely, and we also share the love of our children and love for each other uh, in that wonderful sisterhood that comes about as adult women. Uh, she is someone that I can lean into, who I refer to as not stick furniture. And when I allowed myself to, as I described, to become still, it was a time of tremendous reflection. Um, I had not allowed myself to to feel my life, this life that I had lived. I'd always been working and running um, and perhaps running away from my reality, not really assessing what all had happened. Um, and I think that that has its place as well because children like myself that do have a focus, as was my anchor in classical ballet, that is a survival element in our existence, certainly was for me. When I allowed myself to become still, I became terribly depressed. And um, it was Latanya um, that it was her voice that I heard. She's very sure-footed. She doesn't mince words. She gets to the point, and she not only offers the comfort, but she also insists on doing the work, the physical labor. And it was her voice, and it was her strength that I leaned into during this very difficult period. Before people... Um, read your book, they probably look at you and say, she has it all. She's been blessed, but you've also had struggles. How have you dealt with the good and the bad? Well, the good and the bad are necessary. Uh, the good and the bad, it's part of life. And you can't have all good. Uh, it, it's not realistic. Um, when the bad comes, that's when you have to walk the pathless path and walk through the gateless gate, as I define it. 
and you do you do walk in faith. Um, and so it is the faith that I hold that sustains me and and sustained me in the past. Um, that is not to say that we we don't fall upon times where faith is thin and hope is anorexic. But I have had it, and I and I and I still do, and it is my faith. And faith comes in all an assortment of colors and 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 shapes and beliefs, and I'm not going to go into that. But it is simply that thing inside of us. Sometimes it's just a flicker of light. You just have to keep the flicker of light burning. Um, And uh, it has been um, the tiniest of flames that has kept me afloat. And and I reached out to friends. Um, I had to learn to trust and coming out of foster care that's very hard to do because we trust very little and it does affect our adult relationships but I've had to work through that none of us can survive living in a silo none of us no matter how strong we believe we are or people say we are we have to know that as I say none of us does it alone, or can do it alone, living in a silo. You have expressed yourself through your acting, dancing. How is writing different? Oh, I love that question. Um, well, dancing is, is is my first passion. It's something that's been in me innately since I can remember uh, since the age of six, which I described how I bore holes in my sneakers trying to stand on toe living on that farm in Maine. Um, It is still the greatest expression of my artistic self. I have had these other incarnations that have been so incredibly um, cathartic for me teaching classical ballet to inner-city students. Uh, uh, and then, of course, acting has been an enormous gift. And now writing in a published sense, as I say, I've been writing for a long time. Writing is, you just go on this journey, and it's circuitous, it's never linear, and you're just writing, and now I'm writing fiction. And it gives me an outlet uh, to express another voice um, within this gift that God has given me, which is art. And I don't believe it's an accident that I have been given this abundance of artistic expression because I believe Mother Earth, God, the universe knows that I'm a conduit for a bigger message, not only my own, but the importance of literacy, the importance of artistic expression for children who come to this country, let's say, for example, in truth, to Portland, Maine, from Senegal, from Darfur, who go to Maine, cannot even speak English, but look to art in public schools so that they can express their sorrow. And it was that very truth for me in classical ballet to be able to show up to a ballet class underwritten by the Ford Foundation or the National Endowment for the Arts, but to be able to go every day 
have my car fare underwritten. There was no way I could go without a car fare even underwritten and know that I could hold on to a ballet bar for dear life and know that that was my temporary haven. And so the writing is just an extension for me to say one more time that, yes, no matter what walk of life you come from, honor what what gifts you have. We all are ordained when we are born. You have to hold on to it. Well, that's certainly very inspirational. Now, what advice do you would you give aspiring writers interested in composing their own memoirs? Well, beginner writers, first of all, uh, I would say reconcile any uh, part, uh, especially with a memoir, if we're talking about nonfiction, uh, reconcile um, any discrepancies or any unsettled um, internal battles uh, you may have uh, so that you can write liberally uh, uh, because honesty is, is tantamount to telling the best story that you possibly can. Um, that's number one. Um, number two, um, write, write even most definitely without a publishing deal. I certainly do. Um, it took me a very long time to bring this book full circle. And um, I registered a story about the women who raised me in um, the early 1990s with the Writers Guild of America. And um, you just file away your stories and hold on to hope, share your stories with people that you know have a love for the literary um, so that you might get some criticism along the way. And uh, all along, ask questions. Who do you recommend as a literary agent? Um, is there someone that might be able to plug me into the publishing world? And then, of course, um, if you're going to self-publish, uh, you really must do the research and do it well because it's one thing to self-publish. It's another thing to distribute. Uh, understand that self-publishing and self-distribution must be a marriage because who wants to self-publish 5,000 books that never go anywhere. Anyone who's serious about writing a book, and yes, I'm an actress, and yes, people may might have had a misconception, oh, this is a celebrity that's writing a book, and, you know, she'll do her three weeks on with television press and be gone, which, of course, we all know is not the case with me. I'm passionate about whatever I do. Uh, I put a lifetime of study behind classical ballet. I've treated nothing, nothing else that I've been interested in any different. And so with my writing, which I have been doing since I was nine years old, I have put the same level of passion behind. Some people have been surprised. My God, you're a television and film actress. We weren't expecting this. But I became an actress in my late 20s. It's not all that I have done, and it certainly it does not define who I am. And so I say all that to say, when you write a book, you have to plan out for the integrity of your intellectual property 
to go on the road with your intellectual property. You are married. Once you put pen to paper, you are married not only to telling the story, but then promoting the story. And I got behind my book tour, uh, which has now taken me out to 2008. Uh, and that is, I know, unprecedented. But as I say, it's very important for the author to show up physically with their intellectual property. And I, 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 can't, I can't implore of future writers, and writers who have books already, don't throw your hands up and say, oh, oh, you know, I don't know why my book didn't do well. Well, you have to ask yourself, why are you sitting in Martha's Vineyard at a barbecue when maybe you should be on the road? You have to ask yourself, why are you sitting home uh, instead of being on a... You have to reconcile uh, with that fact that if you are not there to do the press behind your book, and I'm not talking about flashy CBS This Morning, The View, uh, Oprah Press. I'm talking about getting into public libraries, going into schools, think outside the box, get people to underwrite 100 books at a time before you go to a speaking engagement, go into prisons, do things that are civic-minded, that grow the spectrum of literacy and move the book at the same time. Well, I'm sure your fans are really glad that you feel the way that you feel, that you're out there promoting your intellectual property. Your website says courage, hope, inspiration, strength. Are those the words that best describe you? I would have to absolutely say yes. Uh, you have to be courageous in life. And courage doesn't mean, you know, fighting. Courage means standing for what you believe in. When no one else is flanking you with that same spirit. Courage means walking alone if necessary. There's no room, you know, for fear. That you, one has to believe in what one believes in. And um, I, I, you know, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't believe that. I, I, there's a quote out of uh, Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton's um, book, Living History. And she says, fear is always with us, but we just don't have time for it, not now. And I love that quote because it's true. I mean, Marion Wright Edelman with the Children's Defense Fund, Dr. Dorothy Hyde, I'm, so many intrepid women who have fought the good fight, and I'm certain in the beginning alone. So, yeah, I'd have to say my website defines um, who, who I am, what I stand for, and I want to encourage our listeners um, and our readers to log on to www.victoriarowell.com to see where, I go, where I'm going next on 
the, on, on the book tour, the Women Who Raised Me book tour. Um, I have had it up since April 11th. I've received around 3 million hits already, and uh, I really appreciate the outpouring of support around the issue uh, that is defined in my book and um, the courage. My story is an American story. My story is about what we can do if the willingness is there. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to hearing more from you in the Holman Family Pavilion at the National Book Festival on Saturday, September 29th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. For more details and a list of participating authors, visit loc.gov slash bookfest. Thank you for listening.